Good morning. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We are going to be continuing the study in Hebrews. Um, Brother Noad has been going through uh, the whole book up to 10 chapters already. And so I'm going to be filling in for him this week. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This section here starts off with a therefore. And it's always important to know or to realize that the therefore is therefore a good reason. And it always points back to what was said previously. And so he's saying, let's pause and look at what has been said so far. Let's, let's uh, remember what the things I've said, and in light of those things, this is what I'm saying. So far up until this point, and what Noah has been covering in the book of Hebrews, the theme of it is about, is pointing to one person. That's Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus. And in many different ways, it points to Jesus as being superior than what the, um, the Jews have, um, have believed in, their, in their, the Old Covenant. Jesus was a superior in person. He was more superior than the angels, more superior than Moses. He was um, a superior person to the prophets. And also in his, in his work, in his ministry, Jesus was the high priest. <clears throat> Christ was superior than the priesthood of Aaron. He was superior than the priesthood that the Jews followed. And then in chapter 10, we've, uh, we've looked at last week that Christ is superior in his sacrifice. His sacrifice was better. And it's, it's important to, to realize what the, uh, the circumstances and the situation that was going on as his letter was written to the Hebrews. The Hebrews were Jews who have... Um, put their faith in Christ and entrusted in him. And they were following Judaism. And Judaism was, was part of the law. And the law was, was uh, commanded to, to make sacrifices and, and um, do all of the things that were, were commanded in the, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but a Jew, for a Jew to trust Christ would mean that he would have to forsake the um, the old way of doing things. He would be faced with terrible persecution, with trials. He would, he would uh, lose his job, most likely. He would be exiled from the, um, the, Isra- uh, the tribe of Israel, and he would be disinherited or lose his inheritance from his family and even suffer martyrdom for his faith. It was a very hard thing to be a Jew and trust Christ, to, to leave Judaism. 
And many were becoming discouraged and wondered if, if what they were doing was, wasn't right. They were wondering, maybe, maybe I need to go back to the old way, the old way of doing things. The temple was still standing at this time, and people were still making sacrifices. And so, since they were being persecuted for their faith, they wondered, it was, I didn't have to deal with this when I, was, when I was under the law. I didn't have to deal with this before, so maybe I should go back. But the question must be asked, how can you go back to something? How can you go back to your former religion? Look at what you have in Jesus. He is better in every single way. And that is the point of the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better in every single way than the law. So keep this in mind in the background of, background of your mind as we go through this passage, because I'll bring it up again. So last week, um, in the beginning of it, the... It says in verse 1 of Hebrews, it says that the, the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices take away, um, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law was a shadow of the good things to come. And if you could show the first picture on my slide. So I have, what, what would you say this looks like? What else does it look like? It's a shadow. Is it an ice cream cone or a shadow? It's a shadow. It's a shadow of an ice cream cone. But, it's, but if, I, if I was to bring Justin over here, my, my toddler, my three-year-old son, if he was to come up here and I said, Justin, you can have that, and I brought him a picture of this and just held it out to him, would he be happy with that? No. I don't think so. You see, this is a, merely just an image. This is just a... It's the form of the thing, but it has no substance. It's not the real thing. And so I would have a very disappointed toddler if I gave him that. But if I gave him this and handed it to him, now we have the reality. We have the reality here. And this is so much better than this, isn't it? Yeah. It is much better. <laughs> I have a napkin. I, I plan for that. <laughs> so the reality is better than the, the shadow. And that's the same thing with the law. The law was just a shadow, the shadow pointing to Christ. But many people were, were focusing on the shadow than Christ. And some of the believers were, were like, maybe I need to go back to the shadow. No, you have the better thing. You have, you have the real thing. So hold on to that. And the problem with the Old Covenant was that it was limited. The Jews that made the sacrifice could, could never be perfect. The, the sacrifices could never make them perfect. And they would offer them continually year after year after year. Now I have a few, few of my siblings, um, or most of them are in the medical profession. I've got David, uh, Sharon, Marion, and Christine, who are, and Daniel, who are all planning or are in the medical profession. Sharon's a nurse right now, practicing nurse. And 
At the start of your day, before you deal with any patients, what is the first thing you're going to do? You're probably going to wash your hands. And so as you wash your hands, you clean your hands off, most of the bacteria is gone, but it doesn't last. And you're going to have to continually wash your hands throughout the day as you touch patients that are sick or you touch a doorknob or any other thing that's dirty. You're going to be reminded that my hands are still dirty and I've got to wash them again. And it's the same thing with the, the Old Testament sacrifices that they, the, they were reminded continually that they needed to sacrifice over, make sacrifices over and over for their sins. And it never cleansed them. It never removed the guilt of sin. But if I was to tell you, Sharon, I, I have some soap for you that you could wash your hands with and your hands would be so clean that you would never have to wash your hands ever again. Would you want to buy it? <laughs> no matter what you touched, you would, you would be clean forever. And that's what we have with the sacrifice of Jesus, is that Jesus went to the cross and he died for you and cleansed us with one sacrifice, cleansed us forever. There's no more sacrifices that need to be made. It's been done. It's finished. And in... in uh, in Hebrews, um, later on it says that, And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstools. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The high priests were, or the priests were continually making sacrifices. They were standing up. They never got to sit down because they had so many offerings to, um, to, to deal with. But Jesus makes one sacrifice and he sits down. He's done. It is finished. And so we come to the end of the uh, um, this section on that, and. He says in verse 17 that their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. For where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And so that's the, the conclusion of, of uh, this section. And we, we move on to the section in verse 19 and 20 through 25 that we're talking about today. And we take that, all the, the, uh, the th theology and the... the uh, um, behind this, and we can now take, take this and apply this practically into our lives. Imagine if you were a Jew that, were, that was living in the time when they would make sacrifices, and you woke up Monday morning and you had an argument with your, your kids, and you were like, I shouldn't have said that. And you're reminded that I need to make a sacrifice for the sin that I just committed. And then the next day you were reminded again that after you looked at your neighbor's car and you said, I wish I had that. And you wanted it and you coveted it in your heart. And you're reminded again, I needed to go take this sacrifice. And so you brought your sacrifice up into the altar. Daniel, can you show the picture of the tabernacle? So this is the, the tabernacle that the, the Jews had in the wilderness. And if I was a Jew... There's uh, this up here, which is the, uh, has the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the Most Holy Place. Could I enter into the Most Holy as a Jew? 
Could you, if you were a Jew, could you enter into, into this area over here, the holy place? No. What's that? <laughs> Only if you were a priest, exactly. I, could, I am limited to where I can access. I, don't, I can't go all the way through. And I would have to bring my, my offering to the priest, and they would take care of it from there. But in, in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we have boldness to enter the holiest As a Jew, to enter the holiest would be unthinkable. It would be, it would be a death sentence. If a Jew walked in there with, um, as a common Jew, he would die immediately. But we can come boldly into his presence. And even as a Jew, if I was a high priest, I could only enter the holiest, the most holy place, once a year. And that with the blood of a sacrifice. But the reason why we can enter boldly into the presence of the Lord, the reason why, is because of the blood of Jesus. It's through his blood. Our bold entrance into God's presence isn't because of an animal sacrifice. It is because of Christ's shed blood. And it is by, it says it's by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us. It's a new and living way, a new in the sense of uh, the word there is interesting. It's actually very unique. It is, means it's newly slain or freshly slaughtered. And this really points to his death. And it is a living in, his, in the sense that the, it's a living way because Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. He is no longer, he, he's no longer dead. He's the only sacrifice that came back to life. All the animals did not. And so we have a living Savior and he is the only way to God. And it is also through the veil that is his flesh. And why does it speak of Jesus as the veil being Jesus' flesh? What does that mean? The veil in the temple, if you could show that picture again, Daniel. The veil in the temple, it was in the, in the tabernacle here, was, would separate the holy place from the most holy it was a thick. Um, it was made of thick material that separated us, and it barred people from entering into God's presence. And it was really a picture of the reality that sin, our sin, separates us from God. And as many things as Noah talked about a few weeks ago, many of these things in the temple represent or a picture of Christ. And. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. It says in Matthew that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The moment that Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the veil, is, the veil being torn is symbolic to the fact that we now have access to God. The way is open. Because Jesus died on the cross, we have access to God now. And we have a high priest 
over the house of God. Our high priest isn't a Levitical high priest. Our high priest is the better high priest of the order of Melchizedek. It is Jesus Christ. Our high priest is the one who represents us before the Father. A few, a few years ago, um, a couple of, our, uh, a couple of my siblings, uh, uh, Marion and Sharon and I, we, went, we visited the East Coast, and we went to visit the Washington, uh, Washington, D.C., and one day we were walking down um, near the White House, and there was a bunch of police cars that came in and uh, uh, special, um, special uh, SUVs that drove by, and as we came up to the White House, we noticed uh, Secret Service men and um, a big fence that guarded the whole area. Now, since I'm a taxpaying citizen of the United States, shouldn't I be able to see my president? I mean, he is my president after all. Shouldn't I be able to see him? <laughs> but if I try to climb over that fence and try to rush into the White House, what would happen to me? I'd probably be shot <laughs> or tackled and arrested. I wouldn't make it very far. I wouldn't make it into that house. I can't just walk right in. I can't just enter into, this, into the Oval Office without any consequences. I can't boldly enter the Oval Office. I would need a very special invitation from the president, saying that I could come into his presence Jesus is our high priest who opens up the access to God. And we can enter in the presence of God boldly without any fear of being struck dead. Our high priest gives us access to God. So since we have this boldness to enter into his presence, the, the next couple of verses are three practical points, three practical applications of how to um, apply this. So the first one, and each one of these begins with let us. Let us do this. Let us do that. So first of all, it's let us draw near with a true heart. The first practical application to this truth is that we can draw near. We can draw near. Unlike my lack of invitation to the President of the United States, we are invited by God into his presence. We are invited to draw near. We have an invitation to enter into his presence. The Levitical high priests, in a sense, visited the holy place, visited the presence of God. But that was only once a year. As believers, we all, not just one person, we all have access every day into the presence of God, to dwell in the presence of God. We can draw near to the Lord through, through the word and through prayer. And so the, um, we are to draw near, and how are we to draw near? As we approach the Lord, we should draw near with sincerity of heart, with honesty towards God, with a, a, um, a sincerity that is not hypocritical. In Isaiah, um, Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said of the Jews that, these people draw near with their mouths and with honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me. Our hearts need to be in the right place. And we are to draw near in full assurance of faith, 
We should be reminded of the promises of God. When I look at God's word, I can look at his promises and I can be reminded that what he says is true. When, the, when, word of, when God's word says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, I can believe it. If God promised it, I can bank on it. And there are two other things that we have our hearts, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We can draw near because, the, because of the, we have been freed from a guilty conscience by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sin and washed us from the filth. We are no longer condemned. And our bodies are, have been washed with pure water. Paul reminds the Corinthians about their former way of life. He says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-13, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of, the, of our God. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that you've been washed? You've been washed clean from your former way. That was what you once were. You've been washed clean. Praise the Lord. The second calling is in verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember the circumstances that the Jews, the, uh, the Hebrews were facing at this time is that they were tempted to go back into Judaism. Because of the persecution they were facing, they were, they were ready to go back to their former life. And as believers today, we don't really have that temptation to go back to the old way that they did. But we can be tempted to go back into our old former life. We can believe the lie that the things were better and easier before, but it is simply not true. We were a slave to sin before Christ, and Christ has set us free. When we, want to, when we get discouraged, and these, these Hebrews were discouraged, they were, they were ready to throw in the towel, and we can get discouraged the same way. But the command here is to hold fast. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. The idea is to hold on tightly. Hold on tightly to that without letting go. Hold on tightly to the hope we have in Christ. When I was, uh, when we were younger, um, growing up as kids, um, our dad would tell us Bible stories before we go to bed sometimes, and we would uh, we'd go to him and ask him for, okay, can we just tell me, tell me one more story? And so he'd tell us another story, and then we'd say, okay, tell, can you tell us one more story? And we would be doing this so we could stay up later, you know, and later. And so finally, he said, okay, I got one more story for you. There was a... Um, there was a man whose name was Daniel, and he had three friends. 
They were Shadrach, Meshach, and off to bed you go. <laughs> and that was the end of the story. <laughs> but the real story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego takes place during the, king of the, king of, uh, the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. The king built a giant statue of gold um, and he required all the subjects, all the nations and tribes and tongues to bow down before and worship the statue of gold. Those who did not obey would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego believed in the one and true, one, one and true living God, but their hope and faith in God was being tested. It was the law of the land to bow down before the king and his statue. But to worship any other god besides the one true God would be to violate God's commandments. But it would have been easy for them to just blend in with the rest of the crowds and to bow down and to worship before this um, idol and to deny the Lord. But these three men held fast. They held fast the confession and did not waver. When, when the king heard of their defiance, he was outraged. And he brought them into his presence and he said, throw them into the fiery furnace. And this is their response. Let's listen to that. It says in Daniel 3, 16 through, 9, through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to them, sent to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. These men were bold in front of the king, but these men believed that God was able to save them. And even if it didn't happen, they weren't willing to, to forsake the Lord. They weren't willing to give up the hope that they had in God. In the face of this trial and persecution, they held fast. And they clung tightly to the promises of God. And what's interesting is that our hope is even greater than the hope they had. The Lord Jesus had not, had not even come yet. Our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. And that one day he will rapture the church and that we will be with the Lord forever. When we fix our eyes on Christ, when we look at Christ as our focus and the promises that he gives us, we will not waver. We can rest assured in this hope because it is the person that, because of the person who promises it to us. It is he who promises, that is God that promises it to us. And is God faithful? Yes, he is. He is faithful. And lastly, the last application of this passage tells us, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. This last, this section here, I'm sorry, let me go back. This command first starts off with let us consider one another. 
Consider one another. If you look at the person to the left of you, look at the person to the right. Look at the person behind you and in front of you. How could you, how could you consider that person? Consider those around you. In the, uh, the word here for, uh, it says consider one another to stir up, in order to stir up. That word stir up actually means, um, in different translation, it means provoke. Provoke one another, to, to prod somebody. It's to, to move somebody in the right direction. Look at the people next to you. How could you stir up? How can you provoke to prod the person next to you into love and good works? Imagine how your actions and your hope and your love and your good works would be a motivation for them to do love and good works. You see, your, your actions are contagious. People see what you do and they want to do that too. Yet sadly, though, the thing is that we tend to tear people apart instead of build one another up. We, we tend to discourage one another instead of encouraging. And we, we, like, we like to look at people, people's failures and faults and to look at why people are, you know, tend to focus on the bad things of that person. And we look at somebody and think behind their, we think in our minds or behind their back and we say, I can't believe that person just did that. Why did that person just say that? Why would they do this? Don't they know they shouldn't be doing that? And we think these things. We look at them, and then we look back at ourselves, and we, we compare ourselves to one another, and we pat ourselves on the back for not being like that person. But then the Bible says that we should consider one another. We should be considering the other person. Consider that fellow believer. Maybe that believer who is struggling, who is having that trial in their life, who is doing something that maybe they shouldn't be doing, needs you to go encourage them. The one thing that's holding them, that's, that's leading them, that, the one reason why they're going down that path is no one's encouraging them. You need to be that person to go. To come alongside a brother and sister rather than bringing them down. How can... I be a benefit to that person? How can I be a benefit to you? We need to think about these things. And in order to consider one another, we have to get our focus off of ourselves and onto other people. We've got to stop thinking about ourselves. Philippians says it this way, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of my spirit, if any affection of mercy and fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So let us consider those who are around us. Do you know of somebody who is struggling with sin? Do you know somebody who is discouraged, who is going through a trial, who is depressed? We must take careful thought of the condition around us in order to stir up love and good works. And the, and the reason why is that 
many were forsaking the assembling of our, themselves. It says, not forsaking the, that we are not just forsake the assembling of ourselves as in the manner of some. There were some in the church at the time who were wavering and had been absent in regards to local fellowship. And some of the professing believers who didn't have the reality, um, who, had, who had made a profession but didn't have a reality to their faith had been forsaking the assembling. And it really proved that they never had believed um, as it became a habit to avoid fellowship with believers. And there was a warning against apostasy. Some were actually turning away from rejecting Christianity and turning back into going back into Judaism. And those who have rejected were never truly saved. They didn't lose their salvation. They just were never saved. But the call to believers is, there's an exhortation to believers to remain dedicated to Christ. That is why it is, it is vital and important for church health, for spiritual health um, of believers to fellowship regularly. Without fellowship, there can be no way that we can continue to provoke one another. If I exclude myself from, from the assembling of, of one another, how can I provoke somebody else to love and good works if I'm not around? How can you provoke somebody else if you're not around? It's important that we fellowship with one another, that we're together with one another. And in Acts, the church started off with the believers continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And it's interesting that it's not only what a believer gets by going and assembling and and having fellowship, but it's what they can contribute your faithfulness and attendance can actually be an encouragement to others. Seeing people's faces here is an encouragement to me. And as I see people um, faithfully serving the Lord, it's also an encouragement to me too. When I see young people younger than me serving the Lord, I'm like, I need to get back at it too. And as I see older people serving the Lord, it's an encouragement that I should be doing the same thing. That's how, we can, that's how we can spur one another on to love and good works. We all need each other. And in Romans 12, um, it talks about the, uh, some of the gifts of the, the Holy Spirit. But it says in, so it says in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And so he's talking about the gifts that uh, we are a body of Christ, that we are members of one another. And he's going to go on to say, now this is how you can, uh, to, to be an active member of the body, what you can do. So having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. So if you have a gift, let's use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our, 
proportion to our faith. Or our ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. There's a whole list here of practical things that as a church you can, we can be doing, that we can be exhorting one another, we can encourage one another with our, with our works and our actions, and that we continue to spur one another onto love and good works. And lastly, we should be encouraging one another, exhorting one another, and so much more as the day approaches. Christ's coming, the hope that we have of Christ's coming, should be a motivation for us to live for him. It should keep us going. And in the face of the trials and the disappointments of life and discouragements, we can look to Christ in the coming of Christ and be encouraged of the hope that we have. And, and we believe that Christ's return is imminent. That means it can happen at any moment. It could happen um, in a month, in one month from now. Christ could come back. It could happen next Saturday. Or maybe right in the middle of the Super Bowl today, it could happen. Christ could come back. Or he could come back right now. Christ is coming soon. And as you look at this world, if we were to observe the state of this world, it's clear that it's showing that Christ is coming back. You see that the world is deteriorating and, and getting worse and worse each day. If Christ could come back right now, do you believe it? If you believe it, do you live as though you believe that? So we must consider one another in order to spur and provoke one another into love and good works, and so much more as we see the day approaching. We need to keep each other's eyes focused on Christ and his return. Now, if this morning you don't know the Lord, and you have never come to a personal relationship with um, the Lord, I want to remind you that also that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus can come back at any moment. And if you don't have your place faith in him, you will stand before him in judgment. And the truth is that your sin is separating you from a holy God. Just as the veil of the temple was separating man from God, your sin separates you from God. But the good news is that the way is open. Jesus Christ, death on the cross, has made a way to God, made the way to God. The veil of the temple has been torn in two, and now access to God is available. Jesus offered himself up once for sin, once for all, and he finished the work. There is no good works that you can do to earn your salvation. It is just simply placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And the moment you believe it, the moment you accept him as your Lord and Savior, your sins will be washed away. 
and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the, the truths of your word that, that ring so um, powerful. Lord, we, we're amazed that we can come into your presence, that we can enter boldly into your presence, Lord. And we, we realize that it's only because of the sacrifice that you made on the cross, that the blood that you shed on the cross allowed us entrance into your presence. And Lord, we, as we realize that, we want to draw near to you in our hearts. We want to draw near to you in our lives and, and to, to do what we can to spur one another on to love and good works. Lord, pray that we could do that this week, that we would, we would look at ways to encourage one another and exhort one another as we see the day approaching. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.